As we look into our scripture passage for today, I want to start by asking a question. I don't always do that. Sometimes I do. But what is it that makes a person a Christian? Uh, this comes to mind because, uh, as we talked about earlier in this week at Fellowship, about a month ago, a very famous atheist, Ayan Hersi announced that she has become a Christian and is attending church. For a quick background on her, she was born Muslim in Somalia. Her family was uh, basically non-practicing in that religion until the Muslim Brotherhood came to the area in which she lived and started enforcing their brutal form of religion on the population of her region. Ayan Hirsi Ali is a, I think, a young teenager, went along with that strict practice of Islam, uh, wearing a hijab in public and agreeing with the fatwa, as a matter of fact, put on Salman Rushdie, uh, the author uh, of the satanic verses, the imams that ordered, uh, put out a fatwa allowing him to be killed. And she was a Muslim until uh, her family moved to Netherlands, and she was still a Muslim at that point, until 2001 and the attacks on the uh, World Trade Center in America and on the Pentagon and the other places that that happened. And at that time, she left Islam and declared herself an atheist. In that belief, she joined Christopher Hitchens as one of the leaders of the so-called New Atheism Movement. Okay? Uh, well, atheism is as old as anything, really, but the New Atheists were the cool, hip ones, the Christopher Hitchens, the Ion Hersia Lees. However, as I said last month, this woman, who has been proclaimed as a matter of fact, by Christopher Hitchens, but it's hard to argue with this, uh, proclaimed the most important public intellectual to ever come out of Africa. And uh, this woman announced her conversion to Christianity. My immediate reaction to this, because I've been following her for 25, 30 years, um, was, what took you so long, you know? I can see the way you're going. I have that to say about other public figures that you know about. But uh, it was what took you so long. I've, I've been waiting for this. But some very visible, highly visible Christian leaders, and some who I respect quite a bit, said, hold on. You can't just say you're a Christian. They said she didn't even talk about Jesus in the piece she wrote. Uh, and in truth, she didn't. Instead, she spoke of Christianity being the underpinnings of Western civilization, as she saw it, as the book Dominion points vividly out, that Christianity was behind every good thing or action in the world today and for the last 2,000 years. Because of that philosophical basis behind Christianity, she was in church every week to learn more about Christianity and by extension, <clears throat> about Jesus Christ. So, what exactly is the formulation for being a Christian? You know, I've taught this in a simplified verse before, but when you come to sit in a pew 
in a church for the first time, what should be your motivation? A desire to live a good life? A life of meaning? You feel a call by God to come to church? That's a good one. A religious searching? An awful lot of people come to church for that. They go to the Bible, then they come to a church because they're searching. Uh, Is it a cultural decision? Your family are all Christians. And, you know, it would be a cultural thing, a familial tie to be in church with them. That's a reason. An emotional decision. I think a lot of it is an emotional decision. But what about the intellectual decision? What about the philosophical decision? Looking at the Western civilization as Ayan Hirsi Ali has and saying, I would like to support this. So what is the correct motivation to find yourself in a church on a Sunday morning? What do you need to know to be allowed to call yourself a Christian? And uh, I bring this up because today we're going to look at one of the most famous preachers of first century Christianity and possibly one of the most famous Christian preachers of all time. And scholars of today are still debating whether or not he was a Christian at the time of this passage. Okay? Was he, in fact, a Christian? Because the passage today finds him preaching in the synagogue in Ephesus before Priscilla and Aquila who had been left behind by Paul. Not that he had left them behind, they stayed behind, okay? Uh, let's not make Paul the bad guy in this. We saw last week that Paul, accompanied by the husband-wife team of Priscilla and Aquila, left the ministry that they had in Corinth, and arriving in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila remained. While Paul continued his journey to the church that he had left in Syrian Antioch to make a presentation. I mean, we've all been at missionary presentations in the church when they tell what they're doing because they're planning to go out back into the mission field. That's exactly what Paul is doing. He's going back to his church and telling them what he has done because he's planning another trip. Concluding the passage we studied last week, and perhaps I should have gone through this, uh, done two more verses, but I'd already gone long. It says, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia, and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now Paul landed in Caesarea, and it says he went up and greeted the church, and to us, with our map-centric idea, Antioch is north. The Syrian Antioch is north. He lands in Caesarea in the middle of Israel, on the coast, and he goes, it says he goes up to the church. Well, as we've explained before, He wasn't going up north. He was going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was located at an elevation of 2,500 feet. Uh, The rest of Israel was lower. When you were going to uh, Jerusalem, you were going up. 
And then, when you left Jerusalem, you were always going down. It doesn't mean south, it means down. So, Luke does not mention, after, remember, we covered last week the Nazarite uh, vow and Paul getting the hair cut in Cancray and what's all this mean. Paul, uh, Luke does not mention Paul going to the temple to present his shorn hair to the priests to fulfill his Nazarite vow. But one would assume that uh, that was why <laughs> he went up to Jerusalem. Remember, as we're talking about the Nazarite vow and, and Luke sort of giving it quick short shrift, Luke was a Gentile. He was, he was a convert. He was not a Jew. He was writing this and he was giving the facts but without the context. So Paul has gone up to Jerusalem. From the previous, we know that he was going up to conclude his Nazarite vow. And meanwhile, he goes to the Jerusalem church to visit, to uh, talk to the apostles, to talk to the elders. After greeting the church, he then went down from Jerusalem, down north. You know, there's a, a phrase about weather, down, uh, down, uh, down easter. Well, we're going down north to Syrian Antioch, his home church. With Luke's usual sure sense of timekeeping, verse 23 says, after spending some time there. Okay, well, that some time uh, covers the period from the summer of 52 AD to the spring of 53 AD, almost a year that he is in Syrian Antioch. Um, and then it says he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Okay, World War I was called the Great War, okay? It was not called World War I because that would presuppose World War II and it was the world to end, war to end all worlds. This is the third missionary trip now. He does, Luke does not call it the third missionary trip, but he ended the second missionary trip, and now he is on his third missionary trip, where it says he departed and he went from one place to the, to the next throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia. And what he's doing is visiting all those churches, the city in Antioch church, Lystra, Derb, all these places that he had planted a church and been beaten and stoned in, but he's gone back to these churches to strengthen them, uh, give more teaching, possibly develop more elders in that area. With verse 24, Luke could have uh, started, meanwhile, back at the ranch, because that's where we are, okay? He gives us this brief start to the uh, third missionary trip of, of Paul and says, then says, and I'll read the whole passage that we're going to cover today and then go back. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
Apollos is one of the giants of the faith. A first century father of the church. Paul mentions Apollos prominently in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 8. Um, and poor Corinthians, Paul in this passage is once again chastising them. He says, but I brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What is the, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Apollos then to Paul is a fellow servant of Christ. Uh, probably the highest compliment Paul would bestow on anyone in the New Testament. He also bestowed it on Timothy and Aquila and Priscilla. But to Apollos, he says, a fellow servant, we are one in proclaiming the gospel. Verse 24, A gives us this in introduction to the man Apollos. And it says, now a Jew named Apollos a native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. Apollos is a Greek name, of course, short for Apollonius. He was a Jew from Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, there's recently been a controversy uh, over a remake of the story of Cleopatra because they had a black actress play her, and the Egyptians are saying, hold it. They weren't black. If you know about Cleopatra, she was the last of the Greek Ptolemy line of uh, rulers, emperors of Egypt. She was a Greek. But of course, uh, Egypt is in Africa, right? So everyone knows that the black race came from Africa. Well, except for the Greeks who studied the Alexandria, its greatest city started by Alexander the Great, third century BC. I mean, he conquered, Alexander the Great was, well, a Macedonian, but that's Greece. Conquered the area 300 years before our time. He established a city named after himself, Alexandria, which was the greatest center of learning in the ancient world by far. The Library of Alexandria at its peak contained as many as 400,000 scrolls. Julius Caesar accidentally burned a portion of the library's content, uh, contents when the Civil War broke out that he was in Rome and spilled over into Egypt and uh, he accidentally burned part of the library. But it continued in importance until the mid-200s AD. By the time of Apollos, it was now, because of Julius Caesar, a Roman colony of Greek origin, 
One of the, Alexandria is one of the first cities in the world to have one million inhabitants, so it was not a small place. Jews had begun settling in the city as, as soon as it was founded. Remember, you know, when uh, Jesus was born, his family took him because of Herod from Israel to Egypt. They were close together. Jews started moving to Alexandria 300 years before the time of Apollos. Of the city's five districts, one was comprised entirely of Jews and another one mostly of Jews. So 40% of the the city was Jewish at this time. It is where the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of Hebrew was done because of the influence of scholars, because of the libraries. Alexandria is the home of the Septuagint. This then was the hometown of the man Apollos. Verse 24b goes on to say, he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Now, the Greek word translated as eloquent because some of you will have two things here. It might say he was learned and eloquent. Well, the Greek word that's translated here means both, okay? And when it's speaking of Apollos, they were probably saying both. He was from Alexandria. We know he was eloquent, and we'll get to that in a second. But coming from Alexandria and being, as we'll see, a student of the scripture, he was learned and eloquent besides. It goes on to say that he was also competent in the scriptures. Okay. Now, we have, we have maybe a, a biased idea of what competent means. It means you're not incompetent, right? Well, John MacArthur points out that the um, word that is used here, dunatos, is related to dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. John MacArthur prefers the translation, he was mighty in the scriptures, and I do also, okay? He wasn't competent, you know, okay? He was mighty in the scriptures. Another commentator says he was a dynamite preacher, building on that concept. I think both of those comments get to the heart of Apollos in his presentation of scriptures. Verse 25 says, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the uh, baptism of John. Instructed in the way of the Lord is a, a term used often in the Old Testament to mean one had been taught the things of God and following them. That that Apollos was well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures was clear, but here it has the meaning, a double meaning of knowing about Jesus Christ. He accurately taught about, let me get the word right, accurately taught the things concerning Jesus. But we also see that his knowledge was incomplete. He understood that the ministry of John the Baptist was pointing the way to the promised Messiah, but he knew nothing about the baptism of Jesus Christ. The baptism 
of the Holy Spirit. He did not know what that was. He only knew the baptism of John the Baptist. His knowledge, now remember, we're looking at this, we're saying he's mighty in the scriptures, okay? Well, that's the Old Testament scriptures. We're talking 20 years, 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion. 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion. We're talking, he was mighty in the Old Testament, but what he had from the New Testament was what he had heard by Jews. The Jews of Alexandria would go to the festivals in uh, in Israel, the high holy days, Passover, um, those, those, and then come back and bring what they had heard to Alexandria. His knowledge of Christianity was hearsay. What he knew, he knew well. He taught accurately the things of God, but he did not know everything. His knowledge of the entirety of the gospel was thus incomplete, as was his preaching. Not in, inaccurate, but without full knowledge or understanding. Verse 26a says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Just like Paul, when Apollos got to Ephesus, he went to the synagogue to bring the teaching of the gospel to the Jews, just like Paul had done. Priscilla and Aquila heard him uh, were there and heard his preaching. Now, of course, they were already evangelists of note. They joined with Paul in Corinth. They were respected in that. But notice their reaction. Despite his powerful preaching, Priscilla and Aquila showed no envy. They showed no jealousy that he was recognized as a good preacher. They did not see a rival to their ministry, but instead a fellow worker. Indeed, there uh, never should be rival in Christian ministry. And I think uh, pastors like to see a full church. Okay, Pastors love to see a full church and they measure their ministry by full churches. There should be no rivalry. Small churches need preaching and pastors just as much as big ones do thing to remember Christian ministry also is that an approved worker is approved by Jesus himself it is Jesus who chooses his ministers Priscilla and Aquila could clearly see that the Lord's anointing was on Apollos and with that knowledge verse 26b says but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You'll note that Priscilla and Aquila did not call out Apollos in front of anybody. Um, They respected his preaching. They, as it says, what he taught was accurate. But they took him aside to further or complete, and you can take it either way, does Christian education or anybody actually ever stop? I don't think it's ever complete. They took him aside to give him to explain the way of God more accurately, as they say. To Apollos' great credit, neither did he rebuff their efforts. He didn't say, I'm doing good here. You know, I don't need you. He was humble 
enough to accept their instruction and thus his ministry was enhanced. The dynamite preacher now had the full knowledge of the gospel, able to accurately convey the supernatural message of Christ's atonement and to explain the mysteries that have been hidden for millennia. Well, the debate has raged, as I said. Well, raged (laughs) might not be the right word here. The debate has poked up its head occasionally for the last 2,000 years. When we see Apollos here in Scripture for the first time, was he a Christian? Okay? He probably almost had never been in a Christian church. Scholars have said his knowledge of Christianity was incomplete. Uh, He didn't even know about Christ's baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They admit, however, that Apollos, all all the people who are saying, is he a Christian or not, agree that he's a follower of Jesus. Scripture says he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He was, it says, fervent in spirit. He was mighty, dynamite in teaching the scriptures. He preached boldly in the synagogue. But was he a Christian is the question. It's not my question, okay? Uh, Believe me, this is not my question. But I read these, these very good commentaries by Orthodox guys, and they're saying, was Apollos a Christian at this time? Well, I say, who says Apollos didn't have the Spirit of God in him? How does anybody know if he had not already had the baptism of the Holy Spirit? When you became a Christian, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Tell me how that happened. Because because Scripture doesn't say Apollos didn't have it. He says he didn't know about it. But despite what Pentecostals teach, you know, in the Pentecostal movement, the infilling of the Holy Spirit isn't something you seek. It's not something you can grasp. It is not something you do. Except for this, the infilling of the Holy Spirit happens when one calls on the name of the Lord and is saved. The promised comforter comes upon the believer and ushers him into the church universal and gives him the mind of God. When did that happen to you? Did you know when it happened to you? Did you, was there a fanfare? Because clearly Apollos had been searching after God. And clearly he was mighty in the word. And to me, clearly, he'd had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He just didn't know what to call it. He didn't know to expect it. He got it. Clearly Apollos had believed and was spirit-filled, even if he didn't know or understand it theologically. He had believed been saved, and been given the Holy Spirit. So with that, I want to bring you back to our friend Ayan Hersia Lee. Okay? Sitting in a church pew somewhere, 
searching after the source and foundation of Western civilization, hoping to grasp some fabric of Christianity to find hope for the world that she's despairing for as time goes on? Should she be chastised? Condemned for not giving the Christian formulation for seeking hope for the world in Jesus Christ a month after she's sat down in church for the first time. Are we supposed to condemn that? No one enters a church for the first time. A fully formed Christian. We know that. Everyone who seeks does so for any number of different reasons or combination of reasons. When Aaron and I got married, we started attending church to get back to that which we had been raised in. In that case, it was a cultural search to get back to the, to the faith that was delivered to us when we were young and what fell away from. Some sit down in the pew because they are at their wits end because of damage or hurt in their lives. Some people just cry out when they come to church. Some have heard God's calling. Okay? A call on their heart and they come to church to find God. I've known some who wanted to be identified with what they called the good people. They wanted the, the status... <laughs> And at the time I said, status of being a Christian? They wanted the status of being a Christian in their community. That's what they were there for. And some want to understand the world and civilization from the standpoint of God, the Creator, and His ultimate plan for this world. Is Ayan Hirsi Ali a Christian? I can't say. Okay? I really can't say if anybody's a Christian. God is the one who searches hearts. She herself says she's just learning, but here's a warning for those who enter a church and sit in a pew for the first time. These are the words of God. Proverbs 8:17. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Deuteronomy 4.29 But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Jeremiah 29.13 says You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Isaiah 55.6-7 says Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And in the words of the Savior himself, Jesus Christ, in Matthew 7, 7 through 8, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you, Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds 
and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. For whatever reason you come to church, sit down in a pew, listen to the words of God, and lean not on your own understanding. For those who seek God will find him. I'm looking forward to the atheist's journey towards God. Let's close in prayer.